Hello, and welcome back to The Moral Minority Show. I'm Joel Sam, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Luckett. Today, we're talking about the topic of voting, kind of throwing it back to our politics series from last season. And we're really trying to prepare ourselves mentally and spiritually for this upcoming election, November 4th. And um, we're joined by a guest, Cole Niles, who Josh will introduce um, and really, we're just having an open conversation, talking about what are some of the theological and social processes and, and thoughts that we should be undergoing as we enter voting season. And how should we think about all these issues that are on the table for Americans this fall? So, Josh, go ahead and uh, introduce Cole. Yeah, so I wanted Cole Niles to jump into this conversation because I've enjoyed um, reading his stuff on uh, his blog on orthodoxy. Um, he's a gifted uh, thinker and is uh, putting his putting his stuff out there. And I figured he'd be just a great uh, person to come and, and help us process through um, this very tricky situation of, uh, of voting. And uh, hopefully the three of us land on some really wise stuff for you guys to process through. But Cole, uh, if you will, just tell us a little bit about unorthodoxy and and uh, even just like a smidge of of uh, how you personally have, have uh, kind of gotten to the place where you intersected uh, pol- politics and theology, um, or, you know, well, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, I am Cole. Um yeah, I, I started on orthodoxy um, just as a blog, uh, a little bit of a just kind of open journal of what I was thinking about at the time um, and and still am thinking about until uh, right now. Um, so unorthodoxy, I guess, is just kind of um, talks about deconstruction, reconstruction, um, just questions that uh, I was scared to ask um, in my spiritual spaces and my church communities um, and uh, trying to just give people a place to talk about that stuff um, and and discuss it which has been really cool because I think that a lot of people um, want to talk about it. They're just, uh, especially, I mean, I'm here in Texas and people are scared to in Texas because there's so much social stigma about the church and, you know, uh, what it should look like. And so trying to kind of break out of that mold. Nice. Yeah. Thanks Cole. You know, uh, to kind of just to add a little more to the intro, can you tell us a bit about your relationship with politics and how that has maybe ebbed and flowed throughout time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I grew up, uh, in Texas, so, um, my family is pretty conservative. Um, uh, as I kind of got into high school, um, I started to question a few things. Um, and then once I got into college, I, um, I kind of shifted, uh, political ideologies after meeting my, still one of my best friends to this day, um, who's from Portland and everything that comes with Portland, um, politically and, and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I kind of um, shifted from being somewhat apolitical. Um, I didn't vote in the 2016 election because I was so uh, disengaged um, to voting um, uh, for Beto in the um, Texas Senate race and then um, Bernie in the Democratic nomination Bernard. process. Bernard, <laughs> America's yeah. dad, Bernard Sanders. <gasps> <laughs> Boy, we were missing him last night. <laughs> mm. 
man. Uh, <laughs> I like to think it would have looked a little better if he was up there, but you know, oh, man. <laughs> perfect, perfect segue. I mean, I, I think, uh, kind of, we want to do this in some waves and kind of the first wave is just to, uh, just kind of debrief what the heck happened last night. I think, uh, not simply just to, you know, play, uh, post game, you know, armchair commentator, but um but because I think it says I think it was so apocalyptic and revealing about where we are with our culture wars, where we are with our parties, um, where our nation is. Um and so yeah, I'll just say like two quick things because you know I'll I'll probably have a few more thoughts later as we go along. Yeah, and for context, the first presidential debate was um, a day before now when we're recording this podcast. So when you hear the podcast, it might have been a little more time. Um, But yeah, that's the context that we're in, just coming right off the heels of whatever that was. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully we get this thing off before the second one. Um, for the second one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, I think two huge things that stood out were, I think the, the nature of American debate is not debate. And I think anyone like could kind of, could kind of like, just like kind of observe that even like people who aren't really into, you know, how, you know, um, you know, debate or um, kind of uh, an exchanging of ideas or thoughts. People, you know, people who aren't really studied on that, I think, could look at that and be like, oh, that was a mudslinging fest. But I think as bad as that was, and I, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, you guys can, uh, you know, differ on this, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that that was probably the worst debate in a presidential debate in American history. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think it. I think it's safe to say. It's had me sad all day. Like, I was really almost in tears earlier today, just thinking about just how, just how bad our country's gotten for that to be, for that to be the display of uh, two uh, potential leaders of our nation. Um, but it, but it wasn't a debate, it, you know, a, 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 a true debate is not, I give a caricature of what you think and then get you to respond to that, you know, mm-hmm. or, or of course I interrupt you every two seconds that you are, trying to articulate or respond to what I'm saying or, um, you know, and, and, and by the, by the nature of how we do debates, you're not going to get full thoughts out. So you got to chop it up, have your stump speeches, you know, have your key points that you want to pull out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a debate. What happened last night, that was, that was mudslinging. It was, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, both sides were, were over exaggerating the other side. I think Trump did, more of that than Biden, to be fair. I don't want to over um, equate what happened last night because I do think Trump was more of the guilty party, even though Biden was a was a pretty sad showing himself. And so, one, it, it wasn't a debate, um, but I, I, I do think um, um, I think kind of my biggest what, one of the one of the biggest things that was so um, difficult about it was, I think. Um, there were no, as, as our nation is in this place where, you know, literally, I think just at Disney world, they just laid off 2,800 or thousand, thousand, thousand. thousand. Um, 
And they sat at home and watched that debate and said, oh, there's no answers for me. There was nothing there for me. There was no substantive conversation. Um, there was no serious conversation on health care as millions of Americans. I mean, the numbers are actually kind of all over the place, so we don't know the exact number. But, uh, but a kind of number in between would actually be about 10 million Americans have lost their health care. That, and that's actually one of the more conservative numbers. 10 million people have yeah. lost their health care. Um, you know, like uh, people are jobless. People don't have health care. People um, are, are going into bankruptcy because they have massive bills um, from, uh, from sometimes from, from COVID uh, infections. Um, they went to the hospital with COVID. Now they have huge bills. Um, the economy's in a recession. Uh, the uh, literally cities are now. I think it, this is another caricature that happened last night. Was oh my gosh, cities are on fire. Seven percent of the protests have actually been yeah. um, not peaceful, and not peaceful is a uh, and peaceful is a. That, that could be anything from, you know, not peaceful could be holding up traffic or something. Uh, so there are a few cities that are that are riding, but it, but it is alarmingly more than normal. This is this feels more akin to the 1960s where we had multiple cities that were rioting or mm-hmm. after Martin Luther King was assassinated, where we had so many different cities where there were riots and there was property damage. And, and so all of these things are going on in the country. and. While while I'm going to definitely give Biden a huge F for the way that he had absolutely no plan. He was empty. Um, he had no vision, nothing for the American people. But it's even more shameful for Trump, who is our sitting president and gave no comfort at all to our people. And instead decided that last night was a time for him to be a bully. And I, I think personally he was cutting off Biden so much to expose that Biden isn't a good public speaker. Um, it was a strategy, but it was ugly. It really was. And I think it was so sad for our sitting president to use that platform where he should have been putting forth a vision and giving us reassurance why we should continue to have him as our president and instead use that moment to, to really just be a bully. And it was, it was really ugly to watch, especially the moment where he went after, um, I think there are ways to go after Hunter Biden that are fair, but I think talking about his, you know, his past drug Mm -hmm, addiction, mm -hmm things of that nature was just totally out of line. Right. Yeah. Cole, did, uh, what were your thoughts? Did you watch the debate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a joke. It was a laughing stock. Um, I thought that the only reason why I wouldn't give Biden an F or give him a D is because I didn't know that the standard could be as low as Trump put it. Mm. Um, whenever you, at the very fundamental core of what a debate is, whenever you try to uproot that, um, which is simply don't let the other person talk, um, which, you know, let's be fair and say like Joe Biden did sometimes, um, but you're right. It was not to the extent that Trump did. Um, it seemed, I, I think it was a political miscalculation in all honesty. I think that not a single person watched that and said, I want to vote for Donald Trump now. I think that Trump supporters will say, you know, that wasn't great. He shouldn't have really done that. I'm still going to vote for him. And I think that a lot of undecided people probably came out of that saying that seemed like a bully or that seemed like just a jerk, um, which is exactly, I think, what it was. I think that it was 
Um, I, I get why he did it. He needed to be, you know, um, aggressive because he's down in the polls and, and I get that, but the way in which he was aggressive is the most Trump way that you possibly can, which is no substance, just, just style. Um, so while Joe Biden, whenever he did talk, I thought for the most part, it was tragic. Um, however, Trump didn't let him talk that much. <laughs> and I think that Trump would have been a lot better off just letting him talk more. Um, a few moments that stood out to me, uh, first and foremost, the one that I think is going to be played in history classes after this, you know, 20 years after this is mm. stand down and stand by, mm-hmm. um, not, not being able to denounce outright, um, white supremacy. That's, yeah. that was shocking because the white supremacists will still vote for you. Even if you do that, they understand that you have to pander, but he still decided not to, mm. which I thought was wild. Um, yeah. And then for sure, um, whenever Trump started talking about Biden's family, um, Bo, that was really sad. And I thought Biden actually kind of um, held his ground on the family stuff. And, and he said straight up, you know, he had a fighter, uh, Hunter had a drug addiction and I was proud of him and that he's, that he, you know, overcame that. And I think that all of these things like it shouldn't give you political points, but the fact that it's in conjunction or I guess in contradiction to what Trump was doing, I think did give Biden some political points. Mm-hmm. That being said, it was still terrible. And mm-hmm. I think that probably both people came out of this with everybody thinking that they are worse with a more negative view than they went in with both. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't watch the debate mainly because I'm not a debate person in general. Um, but also specifically because I know this one was probably going to be a mess and it seems like my prediction was right. Um, Good call. I am naturally not politically informed, not politically interested, not politically involved. It takes a lot of effort for me to step into that space. And so that's largely thanks to Josh and this year, what we've been doing at the moral minority show. And I've been really strategic in trying to, uh, engage the political sphere in a healthy way. And so if anything, I represent the beginners or the political novices, uh, in the audience as sort of someone who wants to like engage faithfully with issues with a critical mind, but really doesn't want to dig through hours and hours and hours of work every week, trying to figure out what's going on. And so for me, from my perspective, I think a lot of my frustration as someone who wants to be civically involved is that our system is, has a lot of flaws. Um, I'm sure, you know, I don't know exactly to the extent to which you guys agree, but I'm a huge, I'm very much not a fan of the two party system. I think I really strongly prefer the idea of ranked choice voting between a plethora of candidates um, all the way down to the local level. Like the, the whole idea of, having two major parties that infiltrate every level of politics. I mean, today I was, I was researching Texas, um, Texas race, Texas seats that are open for this election cycle. And like, even down to our Texas Supreme court and the railroad commissioner, they're all partisan. Every single role is partisan. And it just really, I think breaks the fabric of our democracy. If we, 
have to put everything on one political spectrum, uh, one axis, in which case there's, I mean, in reality, there's so many axes, there's so many issues that are of import. And I feel like I don't fit in to any category personally with, with my views and what I feel like I want to stand for and support. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's virtually impossible, especially as we're growing more polarized. It's virtually impossible to find any candidate nowadays that the average person can really connect to. And I think that's what is most difficult. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I think, I think no one felt represented last night. I I think, and I, so, which is, I think is why I'm mentioning last night again, because it's a microcosm of everything you Mm -hmm. just said, Mm -hmm. that it just kind of bleeds into every area of our, of our political sphere. I, you know, I know, I know a lot of Trump, not like, just voters, Trump supporters, you know, Mm -hmm. I grew up in Mississippi and so, um, and, and, uh, have been in some more conservative spaces in Texas, uh, in Texas, for whatever reason, they've been a little bit more, uh, they won't come out and say I voted for Trump, but they, you know, kind of imply, Hey, I'm, I'm staying on this side because I think it's safer. Uh, but yeah, uh, my people in Mississippi are uh, unabashedly Trump supporters and none of them would be characterized by what I saw last night. Mm-hmm. None of them would would look at that and be like that was manly or that was good. Um, you know, a lot of them would you know maybe see some of it as strength and see some of it as uh, uh, maybe some things. You know, they can make some excuses like oh maybe you know uh, uh, <clears throat> Chris Wallace didn't do the greatest job, like you know moderating. You know, whatever they'll they'll make some they'll have some things, but but none of them will flat out be like. Yeah, totally represented by the way that he acted last <laughs> night. And as a little D Democrat, um, yeah, it's funny. I told a friend last night, I was like, Biden is like the guy who has a little brother and someone picks on his little brother and says, your little brother's an idiot and doesn't know anything. And he goes, yeah, you're right. My little brother's an idiot. That's how I felt like he was treating progressives last night. Like I was just like, bro, most of the country agrees with Medicare for all, legalized marijuana. And when I say most of the country, I'm not just talking about, you know, rogue liberals. I'm talking about conservatives, you know, a wealth tax. Like these things poll really well in both parties. And so like, you know, of course, Trump caricatured it in a way where a lot of people on the right would be hesitant to support something like that. But the whole time, you know, Biden's just going like, oh, it's almost like Trump would be like, hey, I hear you're trying to do a thing that most Americans need right now. And Biden's like, no, I'm not. (laughs) Oh, I don't want to give people health care. We're going to expand Obamacare and still leave millions of people off of health care. You know what I mean? It's just like it, it was it was just no one felt represented. And I think that's such the sad thing about last night as well, is that I you would you would you would have trouble scouring the American populace and finding someone that says, oh yeah. That guy totally like echoed everything that I believe and stand mm-hmm. for. It was it was a miss. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. Just really quick to add on to that of the caricature that that Trump kept giving Biden, which we've heard now for a long time in his political ads, is he's just this far left guy. And I mean, I think it speaks to you know the fact that Trump is a postmodern president. To that, he just said, you know, Biden says, no, I don't believe that. And he says, well, yes, you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or, oh, you just lost the radical left. Like, 
Mm-hmm. The, those things are are just signifiers, linguistic signifiers that like I'm going to create my own reality of this situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, this is all the way back to the uh, the alternative facts debate from a few years ago. Right. I just think that's so interesting because most of the people who would support President Trump would say that postmodernism is a a scary, dangerous, uh, anti-God worldview. But there, and and in fairness, look, we all we're gonna we're gonna talk about who we're gonna vote for later. We all have to vote for people that we strongly disagree with. So I'm not I'm not gonna take all of that on. But I just think that that's interesting that it's like, hey, call out your bands for creating a false reality and really placing a lot of people within that false reality. Because as, like I said, a little D Democrat and an economic progressive, n- none of what I believe, you know, with some of the things that you guys believe is radical and dangerous. It's actually mm-hmm. most developed countries do it. And America ranks really low in healthcare and different areas like that because we don't do it, <laughs> you know? And mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, the idea that it's just radical and anti-authority and just, you know, like we're some kind of savages that are just anarchists. I'm just like, Trump, like you're talking about people that you're leading and that you're supposed to be trying to understand and finding ways to find compromise and middle ground and provide and serve those people as literally our public servant, our taxes pay for you to, to be in the office, in the Oval Office. And it's just, yeah, it, it was it was just sad. I, so I, I, I do want to just uh, segue into like, yeah, this, what, what, I mean, what were maybe some some positive moments last night, if we could sparse any out for me personally. Um, like I said, Biden was empty as hell. Biden said nothing. He literally just did the platitude thing where he mm-hmm. said a lot of things, but really said nothing. But where he did an incredible job last night was I think he did prosecute the COVID case well against Trump. Now, he didn't really give great solutions on his end, but I, you notice he, you know, he said uh, uh, 200,000 multiple times throughout the debate, constantly putting that at President Trump's feet. And I think that was really good holding President Trump account. He's because, you know, Trump um, is not one to like really like take responsibility for things. Mm-hmm. And I think on national television, constantly holding him accountable for that. As this is actually the first time that Trump's been in a presidential debate where now he's got bodies on his hands. Because before in 2016, he was just a rookie to the thing. Right. And he could kind of, I'm the outsider. But now it's like, no, you've been in and this happened on your watch. And it mm-hmm. didn't have to happen because mm-hmm. their death rates per capita that are significantly better in most other countries than here in America. So I thought that was really good. And I will say another moment, Cole, like you mentioned, a negative moment that's going to be remembered in American history. But I think a positive thing that's going to be remembered in American history is Biden speaking directly into the camera and speaking to the American people. Right. Yet everything he said was as vapid as all get out. It was that he really had no plan, but it was somewhat comforting and, and kind of a, a beautiful moment of I'm not going to argue with this person who I believe is a fool, but instead I'm going to look directly into the camera and speak to the American people. Um, and he just did that like multiple times throughout the debate. And I think that could be one of those moments that at least as far as debate, his presidential debate histories go, mm. uh, could be a really memorable moment. And I think it was really one of the only comforting things about last night was when Biden took those moments to speak directly to the camera and speak to um, the American people. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think also that what that 
kind of helped him with was Trump won partially in 2016 because he framed himself as this anti-elite mm-hmm. sort of person. And I thought that Biden had some moments where he genuinely, he is that, but he genuinely didn't feel like it for a second. And it, and Trump looked like it was more, that he was more of an elite than Biden was. There was one part um, where Trump is just fear mongering about, you know, oh, crime's going to come into the suburbs. They're going to look like Portland. Mm-hmm. They're going to look like mm-hmm. that. And and Biden said something that I actually thought was funny. He said, you wouldn't know a suburb unless you turned like made a wrong turn into it. Um, <laughs> yeah, for I sure. Was, I thought that was genuinely funny. Yeah, um, pop off Biden. Biden. Trump said something after that that was like, oh, trust me, I I know suburbs. I know suburbs far better than you do. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. What? <laughs> so I thought that Joe Biden speaking to people and and that sort of stuff um, helped <laughs> regain a little bit of like, hey, I'm not this elite. I'm, you know, I'm Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, and it's kind of interesting. You mentioned the the concept of elitism, Cole. You know, we were coming right off the heels of the revelations regarding Trump's tax returns. Uh, I think he, if I remember the numbers correctly, he didn't pay taxes 11 out of 15 years 10 out of 15 years years, and he only paid 750 between 2016 and 17 um which is just astounding like (laughs) just (laughs) average people are paying more and and this is what realize it's like the question is not was it illegal i mean like some would argue that what he did was legal like he legally um exploited the tax system what that reveals is that oh our system is flawed and Mm -hmm. People who are elites can get away with these really broken things. You know, the right always accuses the left of, oh, they're going to increase your taxes. Your taxes are going to spike up. But in reality, like, who's the one who's getting away with, like, not paying taxes? It's the people right. with the most money, right. which is astounding. It's it, uh, Just real quick on that. It's interesting. I you know, I posed this to my leaders in Youth Impact um, uh, back when I back when I worked there. Was you know, it's so interesting that we always are so quick to accuse poor and oppressed people of taking advantage of welfare and taking advantage of of governmental aid. Um, when that is such when one that happens so so it's so minorly happens like it's just not like uh imperialistically it's just not a major issue even percentage wise much less is it going to cost america significant amount of money but what will incredibly damage the way our economy and our tax system functions is when wealthy people don't pay taxes because then there's no money to to uh to flow throughout the american economy and throughout Mm -hmm. the american system and so it's like, you know, I'm I'm just going to say I'm way less offended by a mom reporting she has more kids than she does or not reporting her husband on her taxes because she's trying to get more money to feed her family and it's hard to find work than I am by some billionaire who's just finding ways not to pay taxes, but then preaching that we have a trickle down economy. It's just yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievably yeah, hypocritical. I, I mean, the 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 idea that that billionaires even need to like get tax breaks at that level is beyond me. I cannot understand that. Yeah. 
but we like we like to you know demonize uh, those like you said those people on welfare oh they're draining the system i mean you could have <laughs> as many of you know whatever your biggest caricature caricature is of somebody on welfare you could have 100 times that if the rich people paid the taxes that they were supposed to and they would be able to be supported not that that's what should happen but that's how much money we're talking about you talk about welfare people draining the system that's not what's happening it's it's you know by not paying taxes have rich people are the ones that are draining the system right 100 percent. yeah i and so i think uh i think one of the things that happens as as people as christians i, I can't i think i can't tell you how many times this happens as i've uh discipled and um been a leader of college students over the last four or five years how often um I asked them kind of, hey, what's what's theologically? How do you approach the idea of voting? How do you think through how to vote? And their immediate answer is always, whoever's a pro-life candidate. And I'm like, while on the surface that seems very benevolent and very, you know, like wholesome, there are massive social holes in what you just said. Right. Um, and so yeah, let's let's kind of pivot into a conversation of how do you, how do you guys um, think through, um, I'm going to vote for the candidate that thinks like what, or I'm going to vote for the party that thinks like what, 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 yeah. what are some of your litmus tests theologically that you go into that process with? Yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned pro-life and it's kind of interesting. I, I was reading something about this the other day. We, people will argue about like, Oh, what does pro-life really mean? I mean, now it's just code for pro-birth or anti-abortion that's really what it means in a political sense but mm -hmm. i mean you'll you'll hear people talk about a, a consistent pro-life ethic or a holistic a whole life ethic womb to tomb ethic um and i think those sorts of things are, are what's important to me i i think i understand and respect christians who say abortion's evil i don't want to be affiliated with anything that endorses it like, I get that. I really understand that. And to that, I say, okay, so what policy measures are effective? Is making abortion illegal an effective method of reducing the abortion rate? I don't know. Uh, a lot of data may say that it doesn't. Um, I think if I remember correctly, the abortion rate declined consistently every year that Obama was president. Now, you know, and, and I'm not going to every year whenever George W. Bush was president, too. It's mm -hmm. been yes, declining correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. The abortion, the abortion mm -hmm. rate has and been Trump. declining mm -hmm. consistently over time. And so mm -hmm. when we ask, OK, what are the factors contributing to that? Well, it's really complicated and I'm not going to pretend like I know the answer to that question. However, it's consistent. And Josh will Josh will preach this till the day he dies. Probably a lot of the <laughs> factors that lead to abortion i mean the right will say like oh you know it's just people not wanting to have kids people being um just really uh uncaring yeah. about the about a life most of the time yeah. it's really kids are expensive and if you are a single mother with who already has kids of their own and work is hard to find abortion is a really appealing solution to your problem which is at its fundamental core economic um, now, is that always the case? No, that's not always the case. However, in general, that's a big 
factor. Mm-hmm. Even at, I mean, if we can talk about abortion for a second, um, at a legislative level, I'm so I hold to kind of what you talked about, a consistent left ethic of life. I call it Imago Dei politics, mm-hmm. seeing the image of God in every single person, um, whether them be unborn, whether them be American, whether them be, you know, not American, um, whether them be old, whether them be young, um, seeing the image of God in those people. But so David French mm-hmm. at the Dispatch just wrote a really great article on, you know, it's called something like pro-lifers um, to blame or do they have blood on their hands or voting for a Democrat that's pro-choice. And he makes, this is a conservative guy. He's a, he's a never Trumper, right. you, but he's a conservative guy that's saying, listen, we had, you know, as far as the right um, or, or Republicans had the Senate, they had the presidency and they had the Supreme Court. Did you hear anybody talking about overturning Roe v. Wade? Mm. No one did. No one did. And, and if it was important, then that's the time to do it. If it's yeah. important to you that this is, you know, something uh, to be overturned, then you would have people that are stepping up to do that, but you don't. And, and in fact, you know, so many people voted for Trump because of his Supreme Court nominations. All you have to do is look at Brett Kavanaugh's record <laughs> on abortion to realize that he isn't super pro-life. He's actually kind of pro-choice. And so once again, it's kind of this, you're, it's one side of the political aisle fear-mongering and saying, well, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. Only Clarence Thomas on the entire Supreme Court is of the opinion that Roe v. Wade is bad law. That means that there's a few conservatives on there that <laughs> wouldn't overturn it. So, and this is coming from somebody who's pro-life. And I'm so I'm saying, okay, um, what do we do now that we have this, this information? Okay. And, and Trump said last night in the debate, um, Joe Biden was fear-mongering from the left saying, oh, Trump wants to overturn Roe v. Wade. You know, he, he hates women. Well, Joe Biden, that's a lie because Trump downright said it. That's not, that's not on the docket. I don't care. Mm-hmm. He, he said that straight up last night. He is not a pro-life candidate. Give him credit. He signed the Title, the title 10 legislation a few weeks ago. That's, that's about the only anti-abortion legislation that he signed that I know of, mm-hmm. um, we're talking about uh, someone who co-opts an evangelical or just a Christian talking point or mm-hmm. you know Catholic talking point, whatever you want to say, that is the pro-life issue and completely uses it for his own political gain. And then you saw yeah. a little slip up, and I think it was a slip up, and I think that Christians did see it last night whenever he said, that's not, I don't really care that much about that. I don't really want to change that. So, oh, wow. once again, yeah, on the topic of justices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. it was at the very beginning. At the very I'm beginning. And mm-hmm. that's powerful. Woo. Yeah. And, so, you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting. I, I mean, I just want to ask where have we come to in, as, you know, as a Christian community, when we see issues like the death penalty, when we see issues like foreign wars, when we see issues like the immigration crisis and what's going on at the border potential, you know, forced hysterectomies, that sort of thing. When we see um, mass incarceration, when we see police brutality, this is just a huge stack of issues that are life issues. 
Um, I like how you put a cult and Mago Day politics. How can we, how can conservatives or Christians as a community look at all of that and say, oh, but I just need abortion to be illegal? Um, just the legality of abortion is the only issue. Not even abortion as a as an actual issue, a nuanced, complicated issue. I don't know. How have we come to this point? This is really well, fascinating to me. Yeah, the truth is, I mean, it, it was, ne- I mean, and, and I, I think this is the moment where evangelical feet have to be held to the fire. Um, I think one in the modern sense, it's really, they do care. I'm not, I'm never going to question that they care about unborn children. Like right. They do mm-hmm. um, to an extent Absolutely. of course, they don't like Cole said, they don't push it when they have, all of the chips in play to push it, but that, but there is that there is a sentimental and true emotional concern for it. But really, it is it is the way that they can unapologetically vote for the economic policies that they like. Mm. You know, like because it, you could someone could always push you and say, "Hey, you should be fighting for corp for more regulations on corporations so that they don't take advantage of the poor or." Um, that we stop with this false belief that, you know, uh, money is going to trickle down in the economy because it's never happened. No matter how many tax breaks we give the rich or corporations. Um, so you could push, you could make someone have to be like, oh, dang, they kind of got me. Like, I really need to stop voting for these policies that are benefiting me or that I think are the most beneficial, but they keep proving factually to not be the most beneficial. But once someone hits you with, oh no, I'm voting because I'm trying to save the lives of vulnerable children, then they got you. And it's yeah. like, see, you got to let me vote for these policies because I got to vote for yeah. these kids. Um, and then historically, uh, what it was so important for everyone to know and for evangelicals to know about uh, the history of their political ideology mm-hmm. is in the 70s, most in the early 70s, late 60s, most Southern, 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 Southern evangelical Christians were ambiguous at best about what they thought about abortion. Yep. Um, many of them were actually pro-life. I mean, a pro-choice um, for some other uh, either either racist or um, ableist reasons than believing, hey, if someone's going to be born with disabilities, then yeah, they should have an abortion. You know, they were definitely big on like, hey, if a woman gets raped, all that stuff. Um Originally, the thing that got them into the Republican Party in the early in the late sixties and early seventies was busing. They did not believe in busing. They wanted to maintain segregated mm-hmm. schools, and that's what got them in. And then and the, the, the formation of the religious right was largely collected connected yeah. not to abortion, but to but so that Bob Jones University could continue their tax exempt status because they had a policy against interracial dating. There it is. When there it is. Bob Jones University's tax exempt status was threatened, that's when the religious right said, no, we need we as Christian universities and institutions of power need to band together and hold on to, quote unquote, our values. hundred percent. We have to be honest about that. I, just real quick. I, I know you're about to say something cold, but we have to be honest about that. And, and the truth is, I do believe people like, you know, Matt Chandler and these Bible teachers today who are very fervently pro-life, I do believe that they got caught up in it. I don't think that they're just like, um, that they're as wicked as the earliest intentions of it, right? Um, But irregardless, it's your legacy. And we have to be honest about it. And 
and we have to be more nuanced and 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 uh, complex about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think that, I mean, when we talk about the formation of the religious right, I mean, we have to talk about Jerry Falwell Sr. Mm-hmm. And I think that the legacy um, that we see now with Jerry Falwell Jr. goes to show how much of this sort of political ideology was wrapped up in optics. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. We're fine protecting the name. And this is something that, I mean, Trump fear mongers too all the time let's protect christianity we have to we have to protect it said something along the lines of joe biden's gonna kill god no (laughs) what does that mean joe biden will will not kill god and you know the increasingly I, i do this with air quotes secularization of the united states by immigrants well immigrants are actually basically the only thing keeping this country religious at all yeah because Because America itself is a thing secularizing, and it's because of things like this. It's because of the death of truth, and it's because of you know this sort of what does Christianity even mean anymore if it if, if Donald Trump is is a Christian? And I'm not saying that he's not or that he is. It's not, but like if if he's the thing that we're going to look to and say yes, we need to you know protect Christianity, and this is what Christianity is. It's not. That's not mm. what Christianity is. And I think right. that we have to be really, really unabashed about saying that. And this mm. goes, this is, this is a lot deeper than Trump. It's, it's the whole United States of America. We can talk about Obama and, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a, a straight up Geneva Convention war criminal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and I mean, hundreds of children's blood on his hands and and subsequently Joe Biden's hands, right? From one of the largest scale, you know, terror operations in world history, where they assassinated, you know, uh, political rivals of the United States. And this isn't to say like all this is to say is that this whole idea that like America is a Christian nation or whatever is so so wrong, mm-hmm. and it's so caught up. It's it's. You know, the right has their tenets that they hold to and the left has their tenets that they hold to. But like it's ingrained within everything about this. Um, We are not a Christian nation. And I even understand saying, like, let's make it a Christian nation to an extent, except the people saying that are not representing Christianity. Yeah, they're not. And so I don't know. That's the whole thing. It doesn't help to that. um, The left is so. on its surface, uh, at least at an elite level, um, mm-hmm. they present themselves as like, you know, anti-religion to an extent. Like Joe right. Biden, you know, will gladly tell you he's a you know a Catholic, and but but he'll Donald Trump's the one that's gonna you know tear gas people and stand in front of a church. Um, Joe Biden doesn't make it a, a central part of you know who he's running as, you know, I am a Christian. And then you have people with, you know, the new Supreme Court nominee uh, in 2017, I guess, whenever she was um, appointed as a judge in the first place, you have left-wing people saying, you know, the dogma lives loud in you, Mm -hmm. which is blatantly saying, you know, I disagree. And I think that you are religiously a radical Mm-hmm. Man, I wish that she was a, re- a religious radical because then we would have so much more love in this country. We'd have so many more, you know, uh, pro 
Imago Day political systems going on, yeah. but we don't because that's not what we care about as a country. We care about protecting this idea of Christianity. We don't care about actually being Christian. Hundred percent, and I, and I think like, um, I I think that's one of the big things. Uh, that's one of the big misrepresentations that happens is at the elite level. You got a lot of leftists who who aren't even a lot of the political commentators that I listen to on the left who will be like, man, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic, which yeah. it, once you talk about their background, they always got turned into that by the religious right. It's hilarious how often mm-hmm. that happens. But, you know, I think what gets missed, and I think evangelicals need to see this and, and realize, hey, this is actually a really good thing. You know, a lot of myself included, people on the grassroots level who end up being um, economically progressive um, is actually because of their Christian values. Yeah. Like I can can name so Nina Turner, who I, Hey, Nina Turner, if you ever hear this, if you're hearing this run for president in 2024, please, (laughs) Um, you know, uh, Reverend William Barber over in uh, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. I can name Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) Who was, who was a social Democrat because of his, Christian values, which is which I'm segueing into how I theologically think through politics. And it's actually I love your definition, Cole. I would take it a step further and say I I view my politics comes out of an emphasis and a intentional targeting of human flourishing policies for Mm -hmm. the poor. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it as uh, the same way I see uh, the biblical story as I think there's three groups of people. God loves everyone, but there's three groups of people, if you will, that God has gives special attention to is Messiah, his son, um, his people, where that's the nation of Israel, but ultimately expanded into um, all of those who trust in Christ and the oppressed, irregardless of their religion. Um, and, uh, and the reason for that is I believe is not because God, um, actually affectionately loves them more, Mm -hmm. but it's like, if you were to have a child who has a drug addiction or who, um, struggles in some physical or mental way or whatever, it's not that you would have more love for that child than you have of your other children, but you would give it special attention or that, that child special attention. And I so theologically, because I do that, I see God is doing that. That's how I view my politics. So any platform that emphasizes um, the marginalized, that emphasizes um, the poor, um, the foreigner, the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, um, that's where I'm going to that's where I'm going to push towards. And although I do see abortion as an issue that's very important to me. On the Democratic side, this is why I'm a little de-Democrat, is I see a plethora of policies, even if they don't get executed well by neoliberals like President Obama and um, Vice President Joe Biden, I see a plethora of policies that emphasize, that that take special attention towards the poor. And that's why I push that way. And I can't help but see the Gospels and Paul and John the Baptist as having those same emphasis. And so I'm just like, it's hard for me to look um, and what I'm not about to say, which is what was said to me when I was um, early on in college. Someone told me, if you don't vote Republican, you're not a Christian. I'm not about to say that on the other side either. 
Um, because I know like Russell Moore in particular, um, who I think is a phenomenal thinker and believer who is, uh, who is, who's a right wing conservative guy. Um, so I won't flip it, but I will just say, um, I think believers, how much more of a testimony would it be to America if most of us aligned with a party that seemed to have more policies that cared about the poor instead of most of us aligning with a party and right now getting exposed as, you know, someone leading that party looks like the very last thing they care about is the poor. Most of us aligning with a party that gives tax breaks and ensures that we as the church have political and social power. Uh, it doesn't look like what Jesus was really wanting us to display about his character. And so that's, that's how I view my politics. Hey, whoever's emphasizing the poor, I'm going there. Cause I think that's going to lead to human flourishing across the board mm-hmm. when you're emphasizing the most vulnerable. And there's, and I think that that's, it's important to point out that there is vast spiritual precedent for that. I mean, mm-hmm. liberation theology in South America is founded on the concept of the preferential option for right. the poor. And mm-hmm. and we have, you know, you're going to have your, even your conservative Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, he's going to condemn parts of that, but he's also going to say that there's a lot that's good about that. And then mm-hmm. Pope Francis in particular says that that's a good thing. So we, in America, we have this idea that the preferential option for the poor is like somehow this anti someone person, but, and and I know that a lot of people listening to this aren't Catholic. I'm not Catholic either, but I think it's worth saying that the Catholic church has a whole string of theology comprised around this idea of the preferential option for the poor. While I like, I personally like Josh, where I disagree with you. And I think that my Imago Dei politics is more, foreign policy, human rights, and um, anti-war focused along mm-hmm. with, you know, but the, the, the active seizure of life. Um, the passive seizure of life is likewise killing people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what you're speaking to, and that's what you're passionate about, and I think that that's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. that, but that's worth saying out loud, Christians outside of America, this is not a problem. It's not right. a problem. And, and in some places, the most conservative, you know, socially conservative people you will find, which, you know, these Christians are the most economically liberal. And this it's is, right. I mean, in, 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 in places right. like Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. In places like Ireland and Great Britain, you have very, very, you know, quote unquote, liberal, economically liberal Christians. And it's it's not a problem for them because, but we're we're so deep into capitalism and individualism that we think that they're the same thing. That Christianity just must Jesus must have been um, a, a capitalist and a Republican and a free market guy, um, <laughs> just because he lived in that world and didn't say um, <laughs> that you know. I mean, he did say that you can't worship God in money. He he mm-hmm. explicitly talks yeah. about. <laughs> the problems of that, but because he didn't explicitly say that, you know, capitalism itself is wrong. People say, Oh, well he lived in that time. And you know, that was, you know, they yeah. weren't socialist back then. I mean, you he can make the same argument about abortion if you wanted to. 
Right. Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. And you can make the same argument about anything. That's why this is all like <laughs> politics nowadays is is a postmodern hobby. It's mm, not mm-hmm. it's not grounded in anything because whatever you want to believe, there's pro-choice people out there that can that will gladly find Bible verses that you know, I think they would misconstrue to say that Jesus would have been pro-choice. Right. 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 You, you can, you can do it with anything you want because the Bible can be weaponized in any way that you want it to be, mm-hmm. um, right. which is why we have to call out, like when we talk about, you know, postmodernism, I, I agree with so many people on, on the right saying postmodernism is a bad thing to invade this world because yes, Trump happens when that happens, exactly. you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, that was it's, good. That was good. It, it's all about protection, and it's all about yeah. I don't know posturing. It's not about what what we actually you know what God yeah. wants. And I'm not saying that you know God wants my side. I'm just right. saying right. we don't even reflect on it. It's just instinctive. Yeah. Oh well, God must love this. Yeah. You before know, we move into our segment, I, I I think it's just important that it's it's not a you know it, it it's not a I love the way N.T. Wright described it when he got about it. It was less a God would be on this political side. And it was more someone asked him, he said, hey, if there was a, a politics that came out of the theology of the New Testament, what would it be? And he said, he said, I think it would be kind of a welfare state. He was like, I mean, that's, you know, and that was, of course, that wasn't even radical over there. I mean, let, let a Christian pastor say that over here and he'd have tomatoes and rocks thrown at him. But he was like, essentially, he was like, the early church seemed to ensure that the the margins were taken care of first and everything else kind of went from there and it thrived um, from there. And they pulled their money together for what? To make sure people were taken care of, to make sure that people could have these longer stays in Jerusalem as they tried to sit under the apostles teaching to make sure people who had, who were without had, and it was like, you had secular historians during that time who were like, yeah, they, they take care of their people better than we take care of our poor, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so essentially it's just like, it's it, what anyone needs to hear that's listening to this. I'm not saying become a Democrat. I'm not, I'm saying, I'm telling you why I became one. And what I'm hoping you do is you process if Jesus were alive today with his emphasis, clearly being on the hurting, the poor, the marginalized, um, those who were in danger, um, challenging the elites and the powerful of the time, how would he think through voting, which leads us to our last section, but how, mm-hmm. how would, how, you know, how would he, how would he think through that? And it's like, that's what we need to do instead of, well, I'm pro-life and that's why I vote Republican. Yeah. Period, you know? yeah. All right, guys. So here's the, here's the moment of truth. 30. Um, yeah cole you're the guest you can go first so we're talking about who we're voting for yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um thought about this a lot and um for a long time i wasn't about to say what i'm gonna say um (laughs) but i am now i'm gonna walk through this thing just Mm -hmm. really quickly um, I think that Joe Biden is an awful candidate. I think he's weak. I don't think that he's principled. Um, I think that he uh, is in some form of cognitive decline. Sadly, that's just that's not an attack. It's just I think that that's happening. Sadly, um, I don't think that he picked a good um, vice president. 
He has mm-hmm. sexual assault allegations against him that the mainstream liberal media does not want to say, mm-hmm. um, you know, screw, you know, um, believe women, women, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's been completely swept under the rug. He does not in any way want to change anything fundamentally about this country, healthcare, race relations. We, we know who Joe Biden is and, mm-hmm. and it's not, he's not a progressive. Um, his legislative record shows that he is a conservative, conservative establishment Democrat. Mm-hmm. That is what he is. Um, nothing about his policy um, should lead us to believe that he's anything other than that. He has nothing foreign policy wise to show other than, I don't know, uh, the drone do what voting for the Iraq war. Yeah. That's what, uh, yeah. About to say that voting for the Iraq war, uh, you know, uh, a terror campaign that, you know, basically every week violated common article three of the Jovena convention. Mm-hmm. We, we have this idea or Trump has this idea that Joe Biden is like this really dangerous radical. And he is not to, <laughs> you know, a lot of the less dismay. He is not, he does not want to change anything fundamentally. Um, I don't think that he's a good candidate in any way, shape or form. He's not somebody that I want to throw my support behind. But I'm going to anyways, and here's why. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because of three things. And Noam Chomsky, you know, the great, lays these things out way better than I can. Um, but I agree with him. Uh, there's, there's three things about Trump that we have to understand. Um, he is one of the worst, I mean, in human history, probably the worst in human history, because taking into account how much power he has on um, climate issues. Uh, he is actively deregulating, um, uh, even whenever there's not much pressure to do so. Of course, there's lobbying pressure, but there's not much pressure to do so from any sort of conservative establishment right now. Um, it's truly just to be counter to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a big issue. But I will say that's not something that I think I can throw an entire vote behind. So point two. Uh, I mean, he is insanely volatile as far as foreign policy goes. Um, I don't trust him. I wouldn't trust him to be around my dog for two hours. So, yeah, yeah, I have a little bit of a problem with him having nuclear codes. Um, And and this is not just me. I mean, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists creates something called the Doomsday Clock. And that's been going on since nuclear weapons have been around saying, how close do we think we are to nuclear war right now? If you think about a clock and there's, you know, 12 hours, we are 100 seconds away in their estimation from nuclear disaster. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to really dispute the scientists on their view on this. You know, Maybe they're overreacting. Maybe they're not. We've never been at the point that we are, though. We're talking about even the Cuban Missile Crisis. We've never been at that point. So mm-hmm. those those two things um, threatening humanity, and and that's not even to talk about you know the political assassination of you know Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, or you know withdrawing troops from northern Syria. We we are seeing somebody who has a postmodern foreign policy. Mm-hmm. He just does the thing that he feels like is right at the time and then figures it out later. And it almost gave us World War III. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad we didn't, mm-hmm. but it almost did. Right. So 
whenever I talk about the Imago Day, like those things are really, really important to me, but it still wouldn't push me towards saying that he, you know, that Joe Biden, like, oh man, I just really want to vote for Joe Biden. The last thing is the most important thing. And, and the other things are disqualifying, but the last thing is the most important. I don't think from what he said that Trump would accept the election if he lost. I don't mm-hmm. think that he would. And he and it's not that he said something very explicitly a, a week ago, but he's been saying it for months now. Um, the concern is the breakdown of democracy itself. Mm-hmm. Dictators don't dictators don't rise up just willy nilly. They rise up through, quote unquote, democratic systems mm-hmm. that they play to gain legitimacy. And so what we see now is Trump seeding the election with all of these lies already about you know voter fraud and and about how the democrats are trying hacking and the democrats are trying to steal the election if you don't think that he's going to pull that out after the election mm-hmm. you're sadly mistaken right. and so while any other time in in if this was Mitt Romney or if this was you know John McCain i would not vote for Joe Biden i wouldn't vote for them either i would vote for a third party right but because i think that we need to have a popular vote that is so extremely undeniable, mm-hmm. he's still going to try to deny it anyways, because mm-hmm. like we talked about, he's a postmodern president. Mm-hmm. It needs to be so undeniable that we can look at the numbers of the election and say, okay, Trump got destroyed and there's no way that he can say that this was taken from him. Right. The popular vote has said that means I'm, I'm in Texas. It probably doesn't matter. It actually might matter this time. No, it funny. probably doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> where where you're wherever you're voting if you're voting in you know california or we'll say oregon as a democrat like it still matters that you vote because that pop it's the popular vote number that we have to get up it's not the electoral votes we need the popular vote number so that we can look at that after the election after election night is over and say trump if it's a if it's a small margin then trump's going to say oh this was rigged if trump can't say that this is rigged i think that we've done our job right so hmm. All that being said, that was beautiful. Yeah, that was a great take. Honestly, I feel like I don't have very much to add to that. (laughs) I want you to go first. I want you to go last. Yeah, no, 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 no. You want me to go last? Okay. Yeah, because I think you're the biggest wild card. (laughs) Oh, am I? Oh, interesting. (laughs) I do. do. Fair Um, enough. But uh, you could not have articulated, so that that saved me so much time in, uh, in talking because you could not have articulated uh, my dis- dis- despise for Joe Biden more and kind of your preface to your vote. And so I'm also going to say something that five months ago would have made me vomit. And people, <laughs> even people who've been listening to the podcast heard me just rail against Joe Biden. And, and, um, and, and I, and I want to be clear, um, Joe Biden is a racist and Joe Biden is a white supremacist. The very thing that Trump would not denounce last night um, is exactly what was also standing next to him. And I 100% believe that. And I have a significant amount of his policy history to prove it, and a significant amount of his condescending and disgusting language towards the African-American community and many marginalized people um, just across the board, even like you said, with the, it's actually multiple sexual assault allegations. Um, Tara Ritari was just the biggest one. Um, so I, I think he is a vile and disgusting human being, just like I think George Bush was. Um, and uh, and I think, um, but he, here's my here's my logic 
going into why I'm making the decision I'm making. I told myself um, at the beginning of the summer, the only thing that's going to push me to vote for Joe Biden is if Trump is Hitler. And I said that in hyperbole almost, you know, like I'm just like, yeah. there's no way I'm going to vote for this clown who I think is, uh, is in many ways um, worse than a lot of the standard neoliberals um, because he has such a conservative, it's like almost a far right record in many ways with his the way he did crime and uh, was talking about cutting social security. Like he's just, uh, you just, terrible for the marginalized in his 47 years of of being in office um and i told myself until trump shows me he's hitler i'm not voting for joe biden well guess what <laughs> yo this summer has been absolutely atrocious when the first signs of it were when trump called in the national guard mm -hmm. to quell protests in a country that is built off of revolution and protest against the elites that literally people that defend the second amendment say the reason that they're defending the second amendment is in case the government ever gets tyrannical they can have self-defense for themselves in a nation where people are literally hurting and that's why they're in the streets they're hurting because of police brutality because of the economic recession because of just the hopelessness that they're feeling and their president doesn't respond with compassion and empathy but instead responds with a swore, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. And I, I just, when he said that, I got chills and I couldn't go to sleep that night. And I think it, 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 it's slowly, you know, denying the legitimacy of the vote. This, this is a big deal. The peaceful yeah. transfer uh, of power in our country is a big deal. And when, and when, an, and when a reporter asks you, will there be a peaceful transition of power? And you say, it depends. Hell no. That's not that's just not a game that we're playing. That's just not cool. It's not OK. Um, I've tried to be very nice to Trump. We even had an episode where we talked about the Trump presidency and mm -hmm. I try to talk about things. And in many ways, honestly, I think he fumbled into. But there were ways that I think he his presidency did um, change some things about American politics that I thought were positive, even if he fumbled into it. Uh, but they, but his actions, especially over the last um three or four months, even though the last four years have been in many ways a nightmare, I think have really pushed me um, to a place where um, I, it, I'm i going to have to do, you know, what I don't want to do. And I think there's one more thing that's pushing me in that direction is, I think I talked about this in the President Obama episode we did. Um, President Trump was, uh, was a, his existence was the grade that America gave to President Obama's presidency. Like they gave it a, a, an F. And so they said, we'll go with anything besides that vapid, unsubstantive thing that mm -hmm. we just experienced where you went to Flint and drunk a cup of the water to say everything's okay. Where you put the kids in cages before Trump did. Mm -hmm. We yeah. could go on and on and on. Like your presidency was so bad We'll go with this guy, the anti-politician, to avoid experiencing the hell we just experienced as you were fluttering out platitudes to us for eight years. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happened, not only did Trump, was Trump such a, uh, uh, such a big, uh, uh, pe people really fought behind Trump, but people really fought behind Bernie. Mm -hmm. When neoliberalism really fails, it could be dangerous because it could give you 
a possible fascist that just rises to power in the midst of chaos. But it could also give you um, some someone could start talking some substantive stuff and all of a sudden people's ears perk up because they just experienced nothing forever. When what's happening right now is Trump is so bad that Bernie did worse in the primaries than he did in 2016 because people were like, even though I think it was on false logic, because I think mm-hmm. Bernie actually mm-hmm. would compete better against Trump. Like if Bernie was the, the nominee <laughs> right now, I don't even think it'd be a conversation who was going to win. I think it, right. it'd be a washing, especially the way he would articulate his vision and his plan. The fact that it's even still a conversation is a referendum on Biden in itself, um, even though he's got a, a decent lead. But I think, I think a neoliberal giving handing a neoliberal corporatist this mess and watching them do nothing, even though even though it would be significantly better than the Trump that I think is becoming a dictator and potentially a a fascist. um, I think it's going to show the American people while neoliberalism really it really is vapid. It really Mm -hmm. does nothing. And I think it's going to push people in a direction where an AOC or a Nina Turner um, or Elon Omar is attractive. Mm-hmm. They're like, man, someone get us health care. Someone get us out of these wars. Someone fix American democracy. Look out for the marginalized. I think it pushes people in that direction more. And so I think, yeah, I'm, you know, on November 3rd, I'm going to hand Biden a mess knowing that he will fail a lot. <laughs> he'll fail a lot better than Trump, but he'll fail. And I think it sets us up for um, an, a substantive candidate in the future. Yeah. I honestly don't have a lot, of ad, don't have a lot to add to both of you guys. Um, you both made really excellent points. And I mean, I'll just say I have no problem theoretically voting for any person in any party. I have no partisan affiliation. I strongly dislike the two-party system. I could even, I mean, I've considered voting for Republicans. Um, It's just, you know, the the longer we've gone into the Trump presidency, the more Republican politics has lost any flavor that it has had (laughs) with me because I've seen a lot of politics and not a lot of policy. Um, Mm. And so... Yeah, uh, this election season, I'll be voting for Biden. Uh, I'm not particularly excited about it, but you guys really articulated everything that I mean, I could think of. Um, you know, we've got the climate, we've got healthcare, we've got all these issues where I would rather move ever so slightly back to, you know, 2008 to 2016 right. Right. Yep. than yep. move. Then move in God knows what direction. Oh, prehistorically um, bad and dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, that's just the decision we make. It's going to be hard for me to be excited about any political candidate in general. Yeah. Um, and so I'd rather have someone who's milk toast and uneventful um, than <laughs> face, you know, <laughs> and then <laughs> contribute in any way to me thinking back if Trump wins is saying, Oh, maybe I should have voted for Biden, even though I wasn't excited about him. Cause I, I don't know. I don't want to experience that kind of regret. It's, right. you know, to be fair, it's the same regret I feel about um in the, in the primaries, when it came primary time, I was underprepared and I was looking at 
Sanders, Warren, and Biden. And I and in the moment, even in the moment at the ballot box, I was like, I am not ready for this. And I voted for Biden. And I look back at that moment. I'm like, I really wish I'd voted for Bernie. Like a week later, I was like, it like clicked for me as to where where the the things I'd been thinking about were heading. And I was like, yep, should have voted for Bernie. And I was a week late then. And I don't I just don't want that same feeling. Now, that was inconsequential yeah. relatively. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I feel I feel that, too. I, I don't I don't want to be. I think this really is because and, and it sucks to do this because I like I like how you said it, Cole. If this was if this was Bush or Mitt Romney or McCain, God rest McCain's soul, I, I'd easily vote third party I, unhesitantly. I'd be like, y'all are both trash. Get out of here. And and we always do this every every cycle. We say this is an existential vote. It's just that. And, and it's like it's not. But this time. You know, it actually is like, it's like, <laughs> this really is like, I've, I've had to, I've had to recant to so, cause I, you know, I was pretty strident early on, like how I wasn't going to vote for Biden after he won the primary, especially he continues to just, just pick at the progressives and just, you would think he would be appealing to some extent, but no, it really, and, and, and audience, I, I, I honestly would say, like I said earlier, you can be a Republican and be a Christian. You can be a Democrat and be a Christian. President Donald Trump is truly dangerous to democracy. I have to be honest. Mm-hmm. I do. And, you know, me and Cole laid it out. Um, you know, it, it's just, it, it really, he really is. When you got someone not talking about a peaceful transfer of power, when you got someone um, who is just making whim like decisions with foreign policy, when you got someone who won't avow white supremacists, even though they, like Cole said, they would have still voted for him. It really is dangerous. And so I think we do need to just really think about that as we go to the polls as believers, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Cole, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, really appreciate all of your thoughts and your time with us this evening. Um, quick for the audience, where can they find you and connect with you and your work? Yeah. Well, first, I mean, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. Super cool. Super important. Um, you can follow, I mean, you can follow me on, uh, Instagram, uh, C zero L E seven. Um, but you should probably actually follow underscore unorthodoxy on Instagram. Um, that's where we post our stuff. And then you can go to Instagram.co, not.com.co. Um, you can find, find what we're writing. Just wrote something about critical race theory. So I've been getting nice. a lot of, uh, a really lot of good, good stuff on that. Great. <laughs> really good article. Check it out. Great, man. Well, as always, audience, thanks for listening to The Moral Minority Show. Um, Yeah, today we didn't roast Joe Biden. Well, we always roast Joe Biden. But today we're actually, (laughs) despite roasting him, we we did, you know, endorse him. Uh, I guess we were three for three, technically. Saved him. I'm sure he would have been thrilled if he heard what we said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Again, folks, thanks for listening. And we really want to encourage you all to uh, vote with conviction as much conviction as you can have and um yeah let's uh let's again tune in next time as we continue a little bit of the black lives matter series and as we um soon should transition to a new series so stay tuned